question for you to get started. Can you think of the name of the company that produces the content that you consume the most on the internet? For me, the answer is starting strength. Second question, can you think of another company or a brand that produces the highest quality content of all the content you consume? For me, that's starting strength. So I show my support by subscribing to the network. It's $8 a month. You can sign up at network.startingstrength.com. If you can afford it, if it's no big deal, if eight bucks a month is a lot of money, don't sweat it and just keep listening for free. Uh, speaking of the rich and the poor, if you're the former, you might be able to afford our gyms. But the good news is the first session's free. It's a free 30-minute coaching session. And if you mention this ad spot at any participating gym, you will get a free 30-minute coaching session. So those are our ads. We are sponsored by ourselves. On with the show. Mildly entertaining, somewhat obscure guests, relatively interesting topics, semi-professional production quality, reasonably well-informed commentary, a great value for the money, hundreds of fans all around the world. It's the Starting Strength Gyms podcast with your host, Ray Gillenwater. Today's guest is Dr. Philip Ovedia. Dr. Phil, the different one than what you're thinking of, uh, wrote a book called Stay Off My Operating Table. So I would suggest that if you know someone who is not into what we do, right, because we're in the fitness business, so uh, most of us are, are lifting weights, getting stronger, trying to keep our diet in check. We're aware of uh, the mythology that is pervasive throughout the medical community. Um, this is an interesting read to kind of reinforce some of the things you already know, if you want to read that. But but I think it's especially important for the average American, someone who's sedentary, has this the standard American diet, um, and is clearly not not ticking in the right direction when it comes to their health. So, um, Phil, I have a whole bunch of questions for you. I'm really interested in, in talking to you. Uh, I, I love this topic, especially um, as it relates to breaking people's conceptions of what is true and what should be believed. Um, but, but I want to first start by telling you a short story. So one of the reasons why I'm especially interested in the topic of heart health is, well, you know, I'm a guy and I'm about to be 40 here in about a year and a half or so. So that's interesting. Um, my dad's a heart patient, had a quadruple bypass, was, on, was prescribed a statin afterward and had a nasty side effect to it. Uh, he is, from what I can tell, one of the few uh, categories of people that, that could benefit from a statin, which I'd like to talk to you about later in the conversation. But the, the main anecdote I wanted to share with you, Phil, is my mom was prescribed a statin. Um, she is not a heart patient. She has high cholesterol, according to the current ranges, which is uh, an entire topic of discussion and debate. But she went and saw her cardiologist, who's a good guy, a member of her religious community, seems to be well-intentioned, and they prescribed her a statin. And I'm a layman. I don't have a medical degree. Um, I, don't, I hardly know anything. I, I, know, I know that starting strength can make you stronger. I know that because I've done it myself, and I've done it with other people, and so I've proven it. I've proven the hypothesis. I've verified the science, right? 
Um, but I don't know the the complicated mechanisms within in the human body and all of the follow-on effects of what happens when you start messing with the body's chemistry. And so I was hoping to be be educated. And I asked my mom if she could please connect me to a cardiologist because I wanted him to educate me as to why a statin makes sense for her. And before I, before I conclude how that went, I should say that her doctor agreed to talk to me. So that was cool because when my wife's gynecologist recommended that she take the COVID vaccine at 32 years old, having already had COVID and being perfectly healthy and not being at risk of hospitalization or death, I tried to call her office and the doctor wouldn't return my call. Um, and I pulled VARES and saw just uh, report after report, thousands of cells when I filtered VARES based on spontaneous abortion after the COVID vaccine. And we were trying to get pregnant at the time. So I was deeply concerned because not only did they recommend it, they were pushing it on her, right? So when I, when I had this, this situation come up with my mom's doctor, and this wasn't the first problem I've had with one of my mom's doctors. One doctor in the past had suggested to her that she had diverticulitis. So they made a diagnosis without any kind of scope, uh, no imaging, nothing. And I was like, that sounds odd. So anyways, my, my, as you can tell, Phil, my, <laughs> my, uh, my alarm bells were going off and I was wondering, what the hell am I missing here? So, so I spoke to her cardiologist and this is where things relate to you. And I said, uh, doctor, I, full disclaimer, I, this is not my area of expertise. I know hardly anything, but, but what, I, what I think I do know is that I, I don't believe there's any evidence that suggests that a woman in her late 60s who's not a heart patient would benefit from a statin. And he goes, oh, no, that's absolutely not true. We're an evidence-based organization, this and that. And I said, well, I'm glad you said that you're evidence-based because maybe you can help me find the evidence. Can you point to a study that indicates that my mother will have a better health outcome um, in terms of all-cause mortality, whatever, not just changing a number on a blood panel, um, that this will be worth it for her to disrupt her, her chemical system in her body every day for the rest of her life, which is what you're suggesting by prescribing her a statin. By the, and by the way, I think we can both agree we don't fully understand what the follow-on effects of that are, especially if she is on other medications. And so we went back and forth, and this, Phil, this is where the conversation ended. So this is what I want your reaction to. He yeah. said, I'm, I'm not making this up. He said, fine, we don't have to give her the statin. And I said, I said, doctor, I'm not trying to tell you not to give her the statin. I'm just trying to understand why you want to give her the statin. And he said, he said, Ray, uh, and it was in some kind of demeaning way, like young man or something like, this is the standard of practice of all my peers in cardiology. And I said, that doesn't mean it's right. <laughs> so doctor, am I an asshole? Yeah. Um, am I wrong? What, what am I missing here? Can you please illuminate what the hell is going on in the world right now, especially in the medical practice? Yeah, so that, that's a great lead-in because uh, that's exactly the question that I have been asking now for the past few years, uh, looking around me and looking at all my colleagues and our healthcare system uh, and saying, what, what the hell is going on here? Um, and, you know, honestly, this all started uh, because I was very unhealthy. You know, I was a morbidly obese pre-diabetic heart surgeon. And I said, you know, if I'm following the advice that I have been educated to give my patients and it's not working for me and it's not working for them, there's got to be something wrong here. 
And, you know, I started looking around and came across some different information, started asking different questions, similar to what you, uh, you know, did. And, you know, it has led me down a pathway uh, that um, I'm not sure that we're doing um, very much good uh, in the day-to-day workings of the healthcare system. And, you know, I want people to understand I'm not criticizing the doctors per se. Uh, I am, we'll get to the level that I criticize my colleagues on, but they are trapped within a system and that system is built upon a certain set of beliefs, honestly, at this point, beliefs uh, that, uh, you know, but it's not built upon the results that we're getting uh, because the results that we're getting is that more and more people are sick. As you said, the average American, when you talk about the average American, we have to acknowledge that the um, more than half of American adults who are over 50 years old are on multiple medications, not just one medication, multiple medications for chronic medical conditions. Um, 88% of the adults in the United States are not in optimal metabolic health. So if you know we've been acting upon this you know, series of beliefs that we have. And these are the results that we're getting. Um, I have just, you know, really started asking my colleagues, are you happy with the results that you're getting for your patients? And the honest answer has to be, you know, we can't be happy about these results. Uh, And if you're not happy about the results, we got to start making changes. And that starts with asking different questions and, you know, really looking at the evidence as it's been presented to us. And, you know, your mother's cardiology cardiologist is very emblematic of our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. They say they're acting upon evidence-based medicine, yet they don't know the evidence. Nope. They, you know, they've just been told that this is what the evidence says and they accept that. And, you know, it's, um, it's easier to practice that way as a physician. Yep. Um, it is hard to be asking <laughs> these questions and be challenging the norms. Uh, and, you know, uh, on a lot of levels, doctors are overwhelmed. There are so many sick people uh, that we don't have enough doctors and, and other healthcare practitioners to go around and take care of all the sick people. And again, you really should be stepping back and saying, why do we have so many sick people? Uh, but that's not, you know, that's not a question that most doctors ask in their day-to-day existence. And uh, that's a lot of the reason that we're in the situation that we're in. The, uh, the internet kids talk about being red pilled. It's the matrix reference where you, uh, you open up your eyes yep. to the reality of the situation and the word belief is the most dumbfounding to me because man, I, I was so naive that I thought that the practice of medicine was an applied science. Silly me, silly me. Um, Here's the problem. You've got a bunch of people that don't have any idea how their human machine works. Not a single, not the slightest clue. These people are busy, they've got things to do, and they want certainty, they want solutions, and they want answers. At the same time, you've got a group of people that the state has identified as trustworthy to help you with these problems. And then the people that go to school to fulfill that credential and to gain that trust, 
then have this priest-like or godlike status where anything they say is gospel. Ask your doctor about blank. The thing that gets us the most in this business is ask your doctor about strength training. Let me tell you something. Your doctor doesn't know a fucking thing about strength training. So don't ask your doctor about strength training and don't ask me about heart surgery, okay? Um, <laughs> which by the way, I should say one of the things I like most about surgeons is that you you mentioned uh, when you're talking um, to your to you know to your peers, the question is, are you happy with the results that you're getting? The wonderful thing about a surgeon is you can look at what you've done and you can see if it's if it's had a positive effect or not. The effects of polypharmacy are so nebulous that and and the the incentives to actually track patient outcomes and the the amount of headspace and time required to do that and to care about it, you know, being absent, creates a situation where. It's just, it, how is it any different than voodoo in, in, in a lot of ways? You know, we, we have ill-defined problems um, with, with uh, ill-prepared solutions that are not fully tested. And, and really, if you drill, drill down to the root cause here, back to that, that point about people wanting certainty and answers, if you think about what a blood panel does on an annual physical, it defines a bunch of ranges. And each of those line items on your blood panel is a multi-billion dollar opportunity. And the people that are that are willing to take advantage of those multi-billion dollar opportunities are very connected to the policymakers because there's uh, we have a revolving door between you know big pharma and and FDA and all the other agencies. And um, the issue there is they dictate policy and then they leverage the trust of the doctor who becomes the state-sponsored drug dealer. Am I, am, I, am I being unfair? Am I mischaracterizing this whole situation? Is that too negative of a view of what's happening here? Uh, I'd like to say it, it, that it is too negative of a view, but the honest answer is, you know, you're pretty much describing what our healthcare system has evolved to. Yeah. And, you know, the, the question then becomes, well, what do I as the individual do about it? How do I take back control of my health. Yes. Um, and that's really the messaging that, you know, I am now trying to get to people that you do need to take control of your health. Uh, the healthcare system is not designed to keep you healthy. Uh, that's the first thing we need to understand. The healthcare <laughs> system is designed to take care of you when you are sick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, you know, there are many uh, great examples of how we do that. I mean, I look at what I do every day as a heart surgeon, and for the people who have gotten to that situation, uh, you know, it's life-saving, it's life-improving, it's life-extending. Um, but we should be asking, why are so many people getting to that situation? And that's where the healthcare system fails. Uh, again, it is so overwhelmed taking care of sick people that we have lost the ability to, you know, ask and, and think about why there are so many people getting sick in the first place. And so that, you know, goes back to you, the individual, um, you need to start asking these questions. When you go to your doctor and you're diagnosed with, you know, pick your condition, diabetes, high blood pressure. Um, and the doctor says, okay, we're going to manage it with these medications. Your question should be, why did I get this in the first place? And what can I do to reverse it? Uh, this concept that the body becomes, you know, irrevocably broken uh, and all we can do is, you know, give medications, uh, again, is very, um, is misguided. 
um, is not the right question to be asking uh, because you know our bodies don't just break. Uh, they're not a faulty, you know, design evolution, depending on what your, uh, you know, what you believe. Um, but uh, you know, we have been around as humans for millions of years, and we only started seeing these chronic illnesses becoming so prevalent over the past 100, 150 years or so. So we need to start asking those questions. Why is that? Why are we getting so sick? And what can we do about it? And the answer, you're right, is probably not going to come from your doctor. Um, (laughs) You know, there are some out there, uh, but it's really up to you to figure this out. Uh, uh, And, uh, you know, you just start by uh, and, and, you know, you, we started the conversation, you know, you're a fitness guy. Uh, you know, I am uh, all about health and wellness and what we eat and, you know, the impact of our lifestyle. Uh, but the beautiful thing is that it all ends up, in my experience, leading to the same place. Mm. I have patients who start with the fitness aspect and then they say, you know, I'm putting all this work in the gym. Maybe I should start paying attention to what I'm eating. Uh, and I have other people who, you know, they start with what they're eating and then they start feeling better and they're like, you know, let me, let me go start working out and building some muscle and get into the gym. Uh, and it leads them to the same place. Uh, and that's the place that we're trying to get to, which is a place of good health and avoiding these chronic diseases, which are largely avoidable. I'm going to go out on a limb here, doctor, and say that, uh, if you don't use your human machine, and you don't give it proper fuel, it's not going to function well. I mean, it's kind of as simple as that, right? Uh, you you mentioned, you, you alluded to the fact that your MD is not evaluating the problem down to the root cause. And, and you are suggesting that that should be the case. And I totally agree with you. And the difference, again, between a surgeon and a GP is a surgeon is more on the engineering technician side. And doctor, if you don't evaluate the root cause and solve the root cause, your patient dies. It's a pretty, it's a pretty simple equation and, and pretty immediate understanding of whether or not you did the right thing. And so the, uh, the root cause analysis is totally overlooked in the modern medical field. Instead of letting you know that your human machine must be moved and must be fueled adequately, and I know why doctors don't do this. Will Morris, for example, my coach is a doctor of physical therapy and people don't want to hear that. So doctors have an incentive not to tell them. They want a pill. But the reality is the pill may improve your result on your blood panel, but its ability to prove your overall health outcomes, depending on what the pill is, is quite a varied situation. So I love your message, doctor. I love the fact that you uh, are suggesting to people that if they're not using a ton of energy, they probably shouldn't be consuming a ton of energy. And a lot of our health problems can just kind of be drilled down to that. Not only do we have more food than we need, and so we consume more than we need, but modern technology has made it so our food is so incredibly palatable and easy to eat that we're just overfeeding ourselves. And overfeeding, especially in the absence of a strength training program where you're trying to grow tissue, um, the right kind of tissue, lean body mass, not a bunch of fat, is uh, obviously a major contributing factor to a number of the modern ailments that plague humanity, especially Western civilization. Um, 
so doctor, can you please illuminate for the audience who who is your average patient? What are the the demographics? What what is the situation? What is the most common thing that you see? Yeah, sure. So uh, you know, as a heart surgeon, the most common condition I deal with is uh, atherosclerosis, buildup of plaque in the arteries of the heart uh, that then leads to uh, decreased blood flow uh, to the heart muscle. And in the most extreme form, this is a heart attack. Uh, so that's the most common thing I deal with. And the most common operation I do is called a coronary artery bypass uh, surgery, uh, where we basically reroute the blood around these blockages. Uh, it's one of the most common operations done uh, in the United States. And, you know, that speaks to the fact that heart disease, um, which is primarily atherosclerotic heart disease, there are other forms, but atherosclerosis is the most common form. And heart disease is the number one killer in the United States. Uh, and it's been that way for 70 years. Uh, and, you know, as much as with everything that's gone on in the last two years, um, it still remained far and away the number one killer. So again, we need to ask the question why. You know, we have been fighting the war on heart disease for 70 years. In the 1950s, when President Eisenhower had a heart attack while he was in office, it set off the alarm bells, appropriately so. And a war on heart disease was declared, and they were going to eliminate heart disease within 10 years and 20 years and 30 years. And here we are 70 years later, and heart disease is still the number one killer. Just and like war so, on terror, yeah. just like war on drugs. Hey, everybody, if the government declares war on exactly. something, we're fucked, okay? <laughs> exactly. You know, And the, the reason that that is is quite simple. It's because we're treating the wrong problem. We focused on the wrong thing. Uh, and just like you experienced, you know, with your mother, uh, the solution, the solution that was put forward was just take care of cholesterol, stop eating foods that raise your cholesterol level, and then take medications that lower your cholesterol level. And that's how we combat heart disease. Uh, and it's just not working. Uh, so um, I, you know, we can get into, you know, the whole reason we got there. Uh, but ultimately what I look at is it's just not working. And so we need to try something different. And unfortunately, what the system keeps doing is saying, well, it's not working because we're not doing it hard enough. We need better medication, more medication. We need to lower your cholesterol even more. Uh, we need to take more of the fat out of your diet uh, and you know, substitute it with sugar and processed food. Uh, and they, you know, and now it just has become that whole system that's built around that. And we, we, the individuals need to opt out of that system and we need to start unraveling that system. And that's the way that I think this ultimately gets won is that, you know, each one of us takes responsibility for our health and each one of us starts asking those questions that you were asking and, you know, just follow where that leads you and it's going to lead you down a different pathway. Yeah. 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 I applaud you for saying that doctor, because, uh, there are some, there are some quality individuals in your field of practice. There are some people that are thoughtful, considered free thinking. Um, they have guts, they're willing to stand up against the tide, but 
the system has made it so that it's really dangerous to do that. It's so dangerous to do that that a lot of people fool themselves into thinking what they're doing is correct because the idea of telling themselves the truth is so potentially painful to the, their future career prospects. You know, how many people have their medical license at risk for attempting to um, give early outpatient treatment to COVID patients during the pandemic? I mean, there's been so much nonsense that's happened that's been driven by government. It is, it is disturbing. Um, and I should, I should uh, be as balanced as possible and continue to give credit where it's due because it's people like you and your profession that saved my father's life with the quadruple bypass. So I'm grateful to the medical establishment um, in the sense that when it comes to saving someone's ass, uh, you, guys, you guys certainly know what to do in a lot of situations. Um, all right, so doctor, let's say, just take me as an example, because a lot of people listening are like me. Um, I am concerned about my health and fitness. I want to ensure that my heart health is optimal. And uh, I'm a data-driven person. So from your point of view, what are the metrics that I should be concerned with in terms of getting a, a view into my current level of heart health? Yeah, so, you know, at a very basic level, where I start is the five basic indicators of metabolic health. Uh, and metabolic health basically means your body is able to utilize the inputs, the fuel that you are giving it. And, you know, the primary input that we give our bodies is the food that we eat. Uh, so start with just five real simple measures. Uh, two of them you can do at home. Uh, the first one is your waist circumference. Take a tape measure, measure just above the level of your belly button. Do that first thing in the morning. Uh, if you're a man, you want it to be less than 40 inches. If you're a woman, you want it to be less than 35 inches. Uh, the next measurement is your blood pressure. And again, you can check this at home. You can check it at almost any you know pharmacy or grocery store these days, has the little kiosk. And every time you go to the doctor, just about you're going to get it checked. And your blood pressure should be less than 130 over 85. And that should be without the use of medications. And then you're going to get some real basic blood work. And again, almost every doctor is part of their yearly physical. Like this isn't the controversial stuff. They'll check these numbers. Uh, they may not look at it in the proper context, but they'll check these numbers. You want to look at your fasting blood glucose level, the amount of sugar that's in your blood when you haven't eaten for eight to 12 hours. And that should be less than 100 milligrams per deciliter is the units here in the U.S., and again, that needs to be without the use of medication. Uh, if you've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, uh, if you're on medication to lower your blood sugar, it's an indicator that your metabolic health is a problem. And then we are going to look at the cholesterol panel, like we just talked about. Uh, but we're not going to look at the number that most doctors focus on, the LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol. Uh, inaccurate nickname. I don't like using it. But and it's that's not even cholesterol. People... It contains cholesterol, but it's yeah. not cholesterol. It, exactly. But that's what ha most people know it as. Uh, but that number is not important uh, to your metabolic health. Uh, other two numbers on that panel, your HDL cholesterol, the so-called good cholesterol, uh, you want to look at that. We call it good cholesterol because you actually want this to be higher. Uh, and specifically, if you're a man, you want it to be over 40 milligrams per deciliter. If you're a woman, you want it to be over 50 milligrams per deciliter. 
And then we're going to look at the triglycerides, uh, another number on that lipid panel. And you want that to be less than 150 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, so these are the five basic measures. Uh, if people didn't get a chance to write that down, uh, just go to my website, ifixhearts.com, right on the front page, free quiz. Uh, it's also in the book. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can, uh, yeah, there we go. You can get those metrics. Uh, so, um, if three or more of those are not in those healthy ranges that I mentioned, that actually diagnoses you with the metabolic syndrome, it's called. Mm. And what that means is that you are at very high risk of developing things like diabetes, things like Alzheimer's disease, many forms of cancer have been associated with the metabolic syndrome, heart disease. Um, eight of the top 10 causes of death every year in the United States are associated with the metabolic syndrome. Mm. Yet, most people have probably never heard of it. And if they, you know, their doctor has never discussed it with them in this context. Mm. Uh, and they'll just go and they'll be diagnosed with their high blood pressure and they'll be diagnosed with their type two diabetes and their, you know, their waist circumference is enlarged. And the doctor will just say, take this medication, take this medication, eat less, move more. And, you know, that's, that's what you'll get. Uh, and they won't say, this is what's going on and this is why it's happened and this is what we need to do about it. So again, those are the very basic metrics. There are others that I suggest for people um, and you know we can get into it a little bit more, but if people just started with that, uh, because as I mentioned at the beginning part of the, this uh, discussion, 88% of the adults in the United States do not meet all five measures of optimal metabolic health. Mm. So just start there. Mm. So what I'm hearing from you, doctor, is don't eat cheese, don't eat eggs. Is that right? Uh, that <laughs> would not be my advice. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, you know, and again, that's what we've been told. Yeah. You know, cholesterol is for us. Red meat, you know, uh, dairy uh, are the things that we should avoid. And, and unfortunately, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Uh, course, you know, as usual, you should eat plenty of animal protein, uh, and you should eat real food is really how this starts. Heresy. Uh, again, a very, very simple rule that I give people just eat real food. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, that automatically takes care of the overeating problem, because if you eat real food, you're not going to eat a bunch of highly processed carb filled crap that makes you hungrier and increases the amount of calories that you eat in a day and then um, influences your macro split to be carb heavy and, and cause a whole bunch of problems and in, including high blood, blood sugar. So yeah, as usual, things are exactly backwards or, or so it seems. Let me, um, let me comment on a few of these and ask you a couple of questions about additional potential indicators. And this is uh, I know I've started this podcast as uh, as quite an impassioned, um, uh, someone with quite impassioned opinions, but th this is coming from an objective place of curiosity. So I'm going to ask you with that in mind. Um, the waist circumference bit, that strikes me as a, a good kind of general guide, but since it's not a proportion to height, maybe not a perfect guide. So if you're six foot six, the 40 inch waist, uh, probably doesn't apply to you the same way that it would if you're five foot eight. That, that's just an observation that I have. And I just thought I'd check to see with you if, if that's reasonable or if, or if I'm missing something. 
Yeah, it is reasonable. You know, other uh, other sources will suggest that a waist to height ratio is, you know, an even better metric. Um, and, and typically, you know, under uh, 0.6 is considered pretty good there and 0.5 is considered ideal. Uh, but you can do the math, you know, so if we're using a 40 inch cutoff, uh, unless you're over seven feet, uh, you know, you want to keep it uh, under that. Uh, and so it, it holds up pretty well. It holds up well enough as a general screen. Um, what waist circumference, uh, the reason that waist circumference is better than weight or body mass index is, you know, you certainly know, uh, the people in this community certainly know, if you have a lot of muscle, you're gonna weigh more, uh, but that doesn't correlate to bad health outcomes. Uh, but if your waist is enlarged, uh, and what that really means is that you're accumulating fat on the inside around your organs, uh, and that is where the insulin resistance, uh, that is really the hallmark of poor metabolic health comes from. Right. Uh, so that's why waist circumference is such a good metric uh, to use. And again, for, you know, a lot of these uh, cutoffs that I mentioned, you know, these are the general cutoffs, you know, mm. ideal looks different. And, and there are different numbers that I give my patients, you know, when we're really trying to get ideal. Uh, but at least if people just, you know, got into these basic measurements, uh, got them in range, we'd be in a lot better shape than we are today. That seems perfectly sensible. And I think that what's happening here is people are overeating because of the dynamic that we discussed earlier, which is foods that are not very satiating and cause you to eat more, that are carb heavy. And what does your body do if your liver stores are filled with glycogen and your body has to produce additional carbohydrate it, it, or not, not produce process additional carbohydrate, it converts those carbohydrates into fat, and then that fat is accumulated, and the evidence of that fat accumulation can be seen around your midsection, and essentially, if you've got a waist above 40 inches as a man, and you're not half Thor Bjornsson um, and lean, what, what's happened is that that is evidence of you consuming too many calories over time which indicates that you've damaged your health in a whole bunch of ways. Is that kind of a useful, simple explanation of that, of that uh, phenomenon? Yeah, the, you know, that covers it pretty well. Uh, the bottom line is our body um, doesn't, you know, at, at a fundamental level, one of the most basic sort of uh, processes that's going on is, you know, sugar in the bloodstream is damaging. Uh, it's damaging to our blood vessels. Uh, it can be damaging to our brains and our body wants to get sugar out of the bloodstream. And so anytime we're eating sugar and understand that all carbohydrates are getting converted to sugar, um, our body is working to get that out of the bloodstream and, and it puts it into the liver, it puts it into our muscle. Uh, but when those are full, like you said, it's going to convert it to triglycerides and make it into fat. And some of that fat's gonna go into the subcutaneous tissues, you know, kind of under the skin. Um, and, and it turns out that that fat is not that dangerous. In some ways it's protective uh, and it actually serves a useful mechanism, uh, a useful purpose, you know, in an evolutionary scale in that there would be times in the past when food wasn't available 
So that's a store of energy that we can then break down and use for energy when food wasn't available. Mm. Uh, un, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, in our modern food environment, that's uncommon that food isn't available for most of us. So that's one of the problems where we've kind of, you know, uh, thrown a wrench in the evolutionary machinery that, that uh, has evolved. Yeah. Uh, and then ultimately that fat can also end up on the inside visceral fat and visceral fat is uh, particularly harmful um, when it comes to our overall health. Once you start accumulating visceral fat, a whole host of bad downstream effects occur that lead to chronic diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, all of these things that we uh, discussed. I'm glad that you made the distinction uh, between when carbohydrates are useful and when they're not, because I fear that the anti-carb crowd is just as incorrect in their religious zealotry as the anti-cholesterol crowd. Carbohydrates serve a purpose, and if you're exercising vigorously, you will need to replenish the stores in your liver and in your muscle cells. And in that sense, carbohydrates are useful, especially if you're doing anaerobic activity that is fueled by readily accessible fuel. Um, the point that you make in your book and the, the guidance you make in your book is generally, you know, keep your carbs as, as, uh, on the lower side. And I think that's phenomenal advice, especially for people that are, are sedentary or, you know, do kind of mild recreational type exercises. But if you're training, if you're training to achieve an outcome, your nutrition needs to be looked at as a tool to help you achieve that goal. Um, and in, in the, you know, when it comes to strength training, if you've got, so for me, doctor, you should be aware that I, uh, I was 168 pounds before I started starting strength at six foot two, and now I'm 245. Um, that weight, weight gain required a whole bunch of extra substrate in the form of all the macronutrients in order to build tissue. Um, my carb intake now is significantly lower than it was, but but the to reinforce the point that you make in your book, it matches it matches my specific needs uh, based on my specific goals. Um, so that, I think that's a really important distinction that you make. Let's go to the blood pressure topic. Yeah, feel free to respond to that, but I have a blood pressure question for you too. Yeah, the one thing I would just add to that is that this is where you know the metabolic health metrics uh, can be so informative. Uh, because when you're look, looking at something like your triglyceride level, basically what that's telling you is, are you taking in too much carbohydrate mm. uh, or not? And, you know, that's going to depend on your situation. You, you're exactly right. You know, if you're a six foot six, uh, you know, male who's, uh, you know, lifting heavy every day and, you know, has plenty of muscle, um, you're going to be able to tolerate more carbohydrate than you know, someone who is metabolically unhealthy and not in that type of shape. Mm. Um, and the other thing I would just say is I want people, you know, carbohydrates are not essential. And I know this is a little bit of a disagreement that goes on. Between, no, it's, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the it, truth. There's you know, no such thing as an essential carbohydrate, yeah. right? There are essential it fats. It is not carbohydrate. And even if you want to, you know, you can build muscle without eating carbohydrate. Um, you know, you may choose to use carbohydrates strategically, like you suggested, uh, but you know, pay attention to your metabolic health metrics because sure. ultimately there are people who are, you know, very 
muscular and work out every day. And uh, they are still metabolically unhealthy because they're over consuming those carbohydrates and they're consuming the wrong types of carbohydrates, the heavily processed carbohydrates. Agreed. Uh, so they're protein you know, shakes. It and their works protein both bars. ways. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. You make, you make a great point. And, uh, and doctor, this is actually one thing I wanted to mention to you because I think this might be, I, I, I wonder if, if, uh, if you've been exposed to this concept or not, and I'm curious about your reaction to it. So no disagreement on what you said, but it, but efficiency is very important. So the reason why I decided to start this business around the starting strength program is because of how efficiently you can add lean body mass. I emailed Rip for help, didn't know the guy, and he responds and gives me his phone number. And I call him, and he asks what height, body weight, squat, all the lifts, whatever, and I tell him. And then uh, throughout the conversation, yeah, you know, I've been trying to eat a lot, but I'm kind of eating clean. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Eating clean? And I go, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to be healthy. He's like, look, this is a short window of time where you need to add muscle as quickly as possible. And the things that affect your health are chronic, not acute. So I'm telling you for the next couple of months, throw this idea of clean out the window and eat a disgusting amount of food so that you can add 15 pounds to your squat every week for several months. And when you take your squat from 75 pounds to 335 pounds, what's going to happen to you? Well, if you've fueled your body correctly, you'll be big and muscular as a result of that. That's just the math. And that was a fascinating idea that I hadn't thought about, which is uh, no disagreement that you should keep your metabolic health in check. Um, but I do think that if you're going to, to intentionally take a few months away from eating like an adult so that you can achieve the goal of adding useful lean tissue and making structural changes to your body that you'll possess for the rest of your life, that that is, that is in, at least in my case, in my experience so far, and, and that's just an anecdote, it's not, it's not data, um, is absolutely worth the trade-off. So I just, I, I know that you're not too familiar with what we do here, but I, I wanted to share that with you just as kind of a, uh, my belief is yes, your, your, your advice is correct, but you may want to actually put that on pause temporarily if your goal is to gain a bunch of weight. And uh, by the way, in your forties, that should be done very strategically. I did this in my late twenties and I was drinking milkshakes and Cokes and just whatever the calories were, just getting them in. You do that to a guy in his forties and, and, and the, the weight gain is going to bias towards fat. So you have to be pretty cautious in how you manipulate that person's diet and focus on protein. But I, but I just wanted to share that idea with you and, and get your reaction to it. Yeah. You know, and what I would uh, say about all of that is this, you know, highlights the importance of understanding your situation uh, because the answer is going to be different depending on, you know, what, what problems you're solving for and what goals do you have? Uh, and, you know, this is an excellent example of that, uh, that, you know, you're exactly right. If your goal is to, you know, put on as much muscle mass as quickly as possible, that's going to lead you down one pathway. Um, if your goal is focusing on your long-term metabolic health, that's going to lead you a different pathway. And understand that those two are by no means separate from each other. Because one of, the best, yeah, one of the best predictors of metabolic health is muscle mass. And sure. building and maintaining muscle mass as you age uh, is one of the best predictors of both lifespan, how long you live, and your quality of life as you get older. Yep. Uh, so I am a big fan of, of building muscle. 
And, you know, uh, again, it's really going to be situational dependent because if you're going in to, uh, you know, a program like starting strength, but you're starting metabolically unhealthy, eating a whole lot of carbs is going to be a problem for you. And you're probably not going to be able to outwork that ultimately. So you have to take that into account. You've got plenty uh, of stored energy you know, hanging around. If you're around a young your 20-year-old that's still in, in great metabolic health, then I, I agree with you completely. Yeah. I would still say you probably want to avoid, you know, things like vegetable and seed oils and and yes. uh, some of these highly processed carbohydrates. Uh, but I, I, you know, we, we don't disagree. Uh, and uh, this is where the the, you know, all of this is contextual. And all of us need to figure out for ourselves, you know, which part of this pathway is sort of most applicable to us. Absolutely. Can you tell me about the calcium score, what that is, what it measures and its, and its utility? Yeah, great, great question to be asking. So the calcium score, the coronary artery calcium score, uh, first of all, what it is, is it's a uh, CAT scan, a simple CAT scan that can be done uh, to look for calcium in the blood vessels of your heart. Uh, so again, you know, I mentioned earlier, atherosclerosis, uh, buildup of plaque in the heart uh, is the most common, you know, problem I face as a heart surgeon. And we've, you know, traditionally been told that those uh, plaques contain cholesterol. Uh, and what gets lost in the messaging is those plaques usually contain calcium as well. And so a very easy way to screen for heart disease is with a coronary artery calcium scan. Uh, the scan literally takes five minutes. They don't have to put an IV in you. Uh, you just lay down on the table and you go through the machine and uh, we're gonna see whether or not you have calcium in your arteries. And if you have calcium in your arteries, it means that you have been doing damage to your arteries and you have started to form plaque there and then that plaque becomes calcified. If you have no calcium in your arteries, uh, that's a pretty good assurance that you are not at risk of heart disease. Now, the younger you are, the less meaningful this test might be. Um, you know, in other words, you're supposed to have zero calcium uh, early in life and, you know, into your 40s and 50s. Uh, but, you know, if you get the scan in your 30 and the score isn't zero, it's more of an alarm bell. You know, again, 70-year-olds are, are typically going to have some coronary calcium. Uh, so it's a great screening test, very simple to do, like I said, uh, inexpensive. In most places, you can get this done for under $200, oftentimes under $100. Unfortunately, insurance won't cover it, and, and that's a whole other discussion why. Uh, but, you know, if you're worried about heart disease, this is the test you should be getting. And I really recommend it for uh, everyone. Uh, you know, probably starting around age 40 is reasonable for most people. You may even want to get it younger than that if you have reason to be concerned. You know, if you are metabolically unhealthy, if you have a strong family history of heart disease, diabetes, things like that, you might want to get a scan even younger and figure out, you know, do I have disease in my arteries or not? Got it. And the, uh, the action you can take once you get access to that data, I assume, is you could determine if your current lifestyle is leading you down the path that you think it is. 
Is that is that fair to say? Because exactly. once you have calcium in in your in your arteries, you're not going to do anything about that unless unless I come and see you on the operating table. Um, so so the downside of the test is it might make me nervous that oh shit I'm unhealthy and I, I might have this background anxiety. But the upshot is that if I'm uncertain how much damage has been done um, and I really need some motivation to get my shit together, that test might give me the the indication. Is that is that roughly the utility of the test? Yeah, that's exactly it, you know, because uh, if you see calcium, um, then your goal becomes we don't want more calcium to occur. Uh, you know, if it's a lot of calcium, then, you know, that becomes a whole nother discussion about, you know, what other evaluation do you need? Uh, but again, it's a warning sign. And, it, you know, it also is uh, it helps to unmask uh, some of these narratives that we've been told. So again, when you go back to the cholesterol uh, narrative, and we are told that high cholesterol is absolutely harmful for our bodies, uh, and yet there are a lot of people uh, walking around that have high cholesterol levels and have no coronary artery calcium. There are also a lot of people walking around with low cholesterol levels, maybe because they're on medications, maybe because of their diet, uh, and they have coronary calcium. Uh, so, you know, this kind of cuts through the BS, uh, you know, of, of cholesterol, which is a lousy marker in the end. Uh, and it shows us who needs to be concerned about, you know, heart disease and who probably doesn't need to be concerned about heart disease and should keep doing what they've been doing. I'm going to reveal my ignorance about your domain with this next question. So bear with me if it's a stupid one. Um, is there, is there such a thing as a preventative heart surgery? Because I, I'm familiar with plenty of people that have heart attacks and then have to go in for emergency surgery. Is there a situation where you're seeing, uh, your cardiologist and it's like, oh shit, this is about to become a problem. We better get this thing operated on ASAP. Yeah, there certainly is. Um, you know, when you look at the work that I do, uh, it's probably about half and half, meaning mm. that, you know, half the people I operate on have had a heart attack, came into the hospital with a heart attack and we're doing a surgery. Uh, and the other half, you know, they've found out that they have disease in their arteries. Uh, that disease is severe enough that maybe it's causing them some uh, problems, but they haven't had a heart attack yet. And exactly like you said, we're trying to prevent a heart attack from occurring. Okay. And the reason I asked that question is, you know, guys are at more at risk of this than women. And, and a bunch of guys are listening to this. And just for everybody listening to this, if you have a concern about your heart health, that the real fear is that you'll just be hanging out playing with your kids one day and, and you'll have a heart attack and you might drop dead if you can't go see right. you for surgery quickly enough. So is, is, the, is the calcium score the primary metric that should be used to determine whether or not you're getting close to needing some kind of a preventative surgery? Yeah, no, I believe it, it should be exactly that, a screening test. So okay. you know you know, early on that you're in trouble uh, and you can make changes to stop it from getting worse at that point. Uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, it's not as widely used as it should be. And you're right, uh, for a lot of people, the first indication that they have heart disease is that they have a heart attack. And in a large, you know, in a significant portion of those cases, that might be a fatal heart attack. Mm. Uh, and there may be, you know, no indication. Uh, but 
there's no indication because we weren't looking at the right things. Mm. Uh, so again, we can even go back to the blood work. And if we go beyond, uh, you know, cholesterol, and instead we look at something like your fasting insulin level, which is an excellent metric uh, of your metabolic health, mm. uh, we can see the warning signs. Um, you know, it is um, exceedingly rare for a patient to end up on my operating table with, you know, atherosclerotic heart disease uh, that is not insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, to say that easier, the vast majority of the patients that end up on my operating table are insulin resistant. Um, you can't say the same thing about cholesterol. And so why mm. do we spend so much time worrying about cholesterol and no one talks about insulin resistance and most doctors don't know how to assess for it and measure it. Uh, so, no you know, that is the way otherwise. Yeah. Another <laughs> way that you can figure out early on whether or not you're in trouble, but the coronary artery calcium scan, uh, like I said, I highly recommend it. And uh, it will be another indicator of, you know, do I need to be worried about heart disease or not? Let me check my understanding of the role of insulin and how um, uh, that becomes a problem for my sake and for the sake of the audience so everyone's clear. My understanding is that if you do not deplete your tissues of, of let's just call it sugar, and you continue to eat carbohydrate-based foods, um, you are then signaling when a sugar enters your blood bloodstream it signals a response from your pancreas to produce insulin to take the nutrients you you've absorbed into your bloodstream and shuttle them into the correct cells and when you're constantly blasting your body with carbohydrates and um, triggering that insulin response you make the tissues resistant to insulin and so your pancreas has to work harder to do its job and over time, your ability to take stored calories around your waistline and metabolize them reduces because of that insulin um, lack of insulin sensitivity. Um, and your ability to do things like build muscle becomes reduced as well because the muscle tissues are less sensitive to insulin. Is that is that a did I miss anything there? Is that correct? Uh, no, you covered it pretty well. You know, uh, ultimately. Uh, when we become insulin resistant, um, like you said, that, you know, your body just can't keep up with the, uh, with the demands, you know, of processing the sugar, the carbohydrates uh, that we're eating. And once sugar starts building up in the blood, you know, in the blood, um, it then, you know, is going to lead to end organ damage in the heart, in the brain, lots of other places. Um, the, what's key to understand, so, you know, we diagnose this problem at the last step when the blood sugar goes up, that's when you get diagnosed with type two diabetes. Um, but there's a significant period of time before that, that the insulin level is elevated. And if you check it and you see it again, it's an alert that there's a problem. Uh, but we don't check it. Insulin is not a common test that your doctor is going to order. Mm. Uh, and so you're only going to see this problem when it gets to the end stages. And instead, we can see it when it at its early stages. And then you can make the changes so that it doesn't get to the late stages. 
so, uh, you know, we mentioned some basic blood work before. Um, what I would add to that uh, for most people is ask your doctor to check your insulin level. And you know what? If they looked at you and say, I don't do that, you know, it's not indicated, it's not part of the standard of care, uh, then get online, go to one of the many websites that you can order your own blood testing. Uh, my favorite one is ownyourlabs.com, O-W-N, yourlabs.com. And for $8, literally $8, you can order your own insulin test uh, and you can know what your insulin level is and then you can act upon that. That's fascinating. I love podcasts where I learn things. Thank you, doctor. That's great. So, so I believe what you're saying is, is that high blood pressure, sorry, high blood sugar is a lagging indicator of you treating your body incorrectly with incorrect fuel. Your insulin levels yep. are the leading indicator because you can tell when the insulin levels are off immediately based on your current behavior and the blood sugar is only off when you've already done the damage. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a perfect way to look at it. Got it. And then um, I've got a question for you. This one popped into my brain after listening to Malcolm Kendrick. And uh, uh -huh. he's done three episodes with Ripito. If you guys haven't heard those, those episodes, you need to listen to those. They are fascinating and informative. Malcolm Kendrick's point of view is that the plaque buildup along the arterial walls and I hope I'm getting this correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, is a result of endothelial damage and the body attempting to repair that endothelial damage, which results in a buildup of plaque. And one of the contributors to that is, uh, red blood cells are involved in that process. So, so let me just pause there right. to make sure I got the foundation correct and then I'll ask my question. Is that, is that your understanding as well? Um, yeah, so Malcolm, uh, who I'm a big, uh, you know, proponent of as well, I, I recommend his books. Um, but uh, that's, that's pretty much what Malcolm is saying that it is damage to the blood vessels that starts this process. And then cholesterol is part of that repair mechanism. But so the, the other effect is it activates our blood clotting system. So red blood cells and platelets and, you know, other components. Uh, get in there. And uh, that is a major contributor to these plaques. Got it. So that, that when I believed I came to that understanding, I'm glad you verified that I came to it correctly. The idea that popped in my head was, is are, are red blood cells something that I should keep track of in my blood panel? Is my, is my relative level of my, my RBC levels in my blood panel, are those a contributor to, um, would having a high red blood cell count contribute to yeah. plaque development? Yeah, so they can um, when they get uh, excessively high. And, you know, the most common situation that I see this in is in men who are taking testosterone replacement therapy. Which is exactly what uh, I'm asking. Testosterone, yeah, testosterone stimulates the production of red blood cells. Uh, and that is something that if you're on testosterone replacement therapy, you absolutely should be monitoring. And, you know, if your uh, red blood cell level, your hemoglobin level is, is what it's called on the blood test uh, or your hematocrit uh, gets too high, you need to do something about that. The options are cutting back on your testosterone dose 
or you can just go donate blood on a, on a regular basis are kind of the options. But having too high a uh, red blood cell count is certainly a risk factor for the development of heart disease. Um, and uh, it's something that we need to be paying attention to if, uh, if you're a man that's on testosterone replacement therapy. Is it accurate to say that if you maintain a lifestyle that, that uh, precludes the injury to the, the uh, endothelial lining from the outset, that that then mitigates any potential additional damage that might be caused by having elevated red blood cells? Um, probably true. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to say, you know, I'm not aware of the, the data behind that, but you know, one of the reasons that I focus so much on metabolic health and insulin resistance is that insulin resistance is, you know, the major thing that causes the damage to our blood vessels in the first place. There are other factors like smoking, uh, for instance, but you know, uh, insulin resistance is at the root of this. And so if you stop damaging your blood vessel walls, then you probably need to be, you don't need to be as concerned about, you know, what your, uh, cholesterol level is. Uh, and it probably applies to the red blood cell, uh, issue as well. I've, I've just, honestly, it's not something I've seen data on, uh, to uh, be able to give you a definitive answer. I love the word probably, and it just indicates to me that you're aiming to be intellectually honest, which I certainly appreciate. <laughs> um, th this may be outside of your purview, and I certainly don't have the medical background to, to um, articulate this argument effectively, but just in case of something that, that is on your radar, uh, Dr. Nichols out of Tennessee, who's an HRT provider, has been on Rip's podcast as well. And he argues that that your H and H red blood cell count elevating as a result of testosterone replacement therapy, mind you, he has an incentive to, to say this, but nonetheless, let's let's assume he's being accurate. Uh, and he does have data to back up his claim, is that the what people are missing is the distinction between polycythemia and secondary erythrocytosis. Um do you have any reaction to that or is that is that kind of beyond your scope? Um, you know, I would say uh, again that I don't think that that is uh, data driven and and I'll admit I might be wrong. It's not my area of expertise. Um, you know, one, one thing I'm going to I would want to bring up about testosterone replacement therapy is getting back to root cause you know, asking why is my testosterone low in the first place? Yep. And before you, you know, go to taking testosterone replacement therapy, look at, are you metabolically unhealthy? Yeah. Uh, because I believe that to be one of the most common cause, you know, probably the most common cause of low testosterone in men is that they're metabolically unhealthy. Yep. And I have seen with many people uh, now and myself included, that when I improved my metabolic health, my testosterone went up dramatically. And my testosterone is higher today as a 48-year-old uh, than it was as a 35-year-old when I was metabolically unhealthy. And well that's done. without taking testosterone replacement therapy. Well so, um, you know, one thing that I get back to in uh, men who are, you know, curious about testosterone replacement therapy is I always say, let's 
try and figure out why your testosterone is low in the first place, rather than just putting the Band-Aid on the problem and giving you, you know, extra testosterone. And maybe, you know, ex, you know maybe taking the TRT uh, can be a bridge to getting you there because, you know, certainly when you get your testosterone level up, it's easier to build muscle and building more muscle is going to help fix your metabolic health. Uh, but let's look at the basics first. You know, if you're eating a bunch of processed food and taking testosterone replacement therapy, that's not going to end up well for you. Uh, I'm pretty confident in saying that. So, uh, you know, this is a situation where, yeah, let's look at the underlying issue uh, and let's try and address that underlying issue uh, before we go to something like testosterone replacement therapy. Which I think is wonderful advice for any drug you plan on taking. Um, and yeah, exactly. It, and it is it is exactly the advice that Steph Bradford, the uh, you know Rips business partner, um, uh, suggests. And she's a, she's a PhD in pharmacology. You know, be very careful with drugs, especially drugs that you re that require you to be on them for the rest of your life. Um, that being said, doctor, I'm also glad that you're open to the idea of TRT as a bridge to improved health. Because I have to tell you, I mean, I see unhealthy people trying to get better every day. This is what I do for a living, you know? Um, we've got a thousand plus people uh, in our gyms that, that will probably fall into that category in some way. And I can tell you that um, some of these people that are obese, morbidly obese, haven't exercised maybe ever, um, feel like shit, you know, they're not happy. Part of the problem is psychological. And one mm -hmm. of the main benefits of TRT, even if it's just used as a bridge, is it gives you the motivation to actually take matters into your own hands and get off your ass and do something. Um, and so in that, in that sense, I don't think it should be overlooked, but I certainly appreciate and respect your advice of uh, the body's a sensitive, complicated system. So if you're gonna resolve a problem, like if you're gonna resolve a thyroid issue by taking thyroid medication, you know, make sure that's, uh, that that's a, an issue that needs to be resolved because you've got some sort of a um, genetic problem or some some issue that can't be resolved with a lifestyle modification. Right, right. In the end, you know, most uh, the vast majority of our problems, our chronic medical problems, are not because of a deficiency of a medication. Uh, you know, and that's really the framework we should be thinking in. Right. You know, what is causing this problem? What can I do to, you know, correct this problem? Uh, and, and yeah, sometimes medications are going to be needed. Uh, but your goal should always be, you know, to minimize the need for those medications and the length you're going to be on them. Like you said, you know, being on a medication for the rest of your life uh, really should be a rare situation. But unfortunately, it's very commonplace today. And being on 12 for the rest of your life is something you really ought to avoid, if at all possible. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, doctor, that was a hell of a conversation. I really enjoyed that. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for educating us and uh, sharing your opinion. And most importantly, thank you for having the balls to say what you believe to be true and for calling out what you think is bullshit at a time when that can be extremely dangerous to your future and your livelihood. So... Um, it is, it is, it is actually accurate to call that act brave in 2023. And, and I appreciate you. And, the, and I know the audience does as well. Um, would you mind plugging some of your details so people can follow you, whether it be social media, website, books, et cetera? 
Yeah, sure thing. So the book, uh, you know, you showed it before, it's Stay Off My Operating Table, uh, widely available in all the usual places. Uh, go to my website, ifixhearts.com. That's where you can find out about all the different ways that I work with people. We have coaching programs. I have a private medical practice, telemedicine practice. I see people throughout the U.S. if you're looking for, you know, this type of care. Uh, and uh, iFix Hearts is where I'm at on most social media. Uh, Twitter is where I'm most active. Um, and uh, Instagram is actually under Ovadia Heart Health. Someone, someone's still squatting on iFix Hearts. We're trying to fix that, but uh, just put my name in it. It's, uh, you know, uh, unique enough that you'll find me. Excellent. Well, thank you again, doctor. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Ray. Right, take care.